0: So we're looking at Romans chapter 9 this morning. And as you look at this text and as you've just heard it read and as you had the chance to hopefully look at it yourself, um, this text, I think of any other text in all of the scriptures, are, is probably the most offensive text to humanity as any text you'd find in the Bible. In fact, the truths taught in this text are hated. By so very many. And so I come into this pulpit this morning uh, with great tepidation, recognizing that this is the truth of God's word, yet to understand that there are many, many who reject the very truths that Romans 9 is teaching. And for some, even this morning, I don't know all of you here this morning. For some, it might even be the last time you come to a church, uh, the Fairy Baptist Church, because you recognize, boy, if that's what they're teaching, there's no way I'm having anything to do with that. Okay, because the, these truths that we're going to look at are so shocking to us. Um, and so I pray that God would give us humility as we look at the text of Scripture here together. Now, you might be wondering, why are we here in Romans chapter 9 this morning? We've been looking at a series about the glory of God in the salvation of sinners. And we're really in the the fourth part of that. We looked at. First in Exodus 33, where Moses asked God to show him his glory. And so what does God do? God proclaims his name because proclaiming God's name, having his name proclaimed is part of showing his glory. And God not only proclaimed his name, but he showed him his attributes. He says, I am merciful, loving, kind, all powerful All these different attributes of God, his attributes and his name are his glory, his splendor, his magnificence. His awesomeness. And God said one other thing to Moses. And it's quoted here in this passage. That he would have mercy on whomever will have mercy. And that's another aspect of God's glory. His freedom. His prerogative. To be merciful. To be merciful. And so that's one reason why we're looking at this truth here this morning. The second reason why we're looking at this chapter here this morning. Is because when we consider the glory of God... We're considering a being in the person of God that is not, not, not small or minuscule. When you think of glory, you're thinking of big. You're thinking of, of magnificence that, that you can't look at it too long without turning away. Like you think of the glory of the sun is its bright is its heat. You can't take it full force. You look at it for just a moment and then you have to squint your eyes and your eyes begin to cry in water because you cannot fathom to stare at the glory of the sun for that long. And when we consider the glory of God, We're not just worshiping a small little God. We're considering the creator of heaven and earth. And this passage gives us such a high and exalted view of God that we see his glory. Okay, so those are some of the reasons why we're looking at this text this morning. Now, some of the truths looked at so far, not only in Exodus 33, when Moses wanted to see the glory of God, we then looked at how God is all powerful. How God's power is part of his glory. Not only do we see his power in creation, but we see his power in the gospel. Romans 1.18, the gospel is the power of God to salvation for those who believe. That is, the gospel is God's power. So, in how God saves, through the good news of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, that is God's power. So we looked at God's power as a demonstration of his glory. And last week we looked at man's sinfulness. Saw that man is sinful, he's trapped, he's hopeless, unable to save himself. And the reason why I looked at that is because it's necessary for God's power to be at work in our life to grant us salvation. So that we're forgiven of our sins, so that we can have eternal life. And so God's power must work towards us as human beings if we are going to be saved. We're hopeless without God's power, it needs a supernatural work of God. Through Father, Son, and Holy Spirit to redeem a sinner. So that's what we looked at last week as we contemplated God's glory. And now this week we're going to look at God's plan to rescue sinners and how that is also a demonstration of his glory. Now we must consider God's plan when we consider of God's glory in the salvation of sinners. Because we looked at a God who is all powerful, we looked at sinners who are unable to save themselves. Well, then the natural question is, well, we understand it's necessary for God's power to be at work in the salvation of sinners, but why doesn't God save everyone? If God is all powerful and he can save everyone, why doesn't he do it? What glory does God get from only saving some people? And so that's a question we have to ask. What was God's plan in the salvation of people? Now we know not, not everyone is saved and we know this because Jesus himself said this. Jesus said in Matthew twenty five forty six, he said, and these, talking about this day of judgment, these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. The scriptures don't teach that there is no such thing as hell. In fact, Jesus, more than anyone, taught about hell. The scriptures also don't teach that we are annihilated. Those, those who go to hell are really annihilated. They're snuffed out. They're no more. There's no more existence. Jesus in this passage in Matthew 25, 46 puts them in parallel. Eternal punishment and eternal life. And he makes a separation, a judgment between those who suffer eternal punishment and those who have eternal life. Now, if we say, well, there's no such thing as eternal punishment, then what, what criteria are you clinging to for that promise of eternal life? Because he puts the two side by side. And so we know that there is a hell. We know that there is an eternal conscious torment of those who are not rescued through the gospel. And so the questions start to fill our mind. And let me um, mention some of these questions that we have when we consider God's plan and the reality of his power to save and the reality of hell. What is God's plan? Did or does he plan to save everyone? Did he plan only to save some? Did he plan to save as many as he could? If it wasn't his plan to save everyone, then what glory does he get from the judgment of those not saved? How can he receive glory for eternally punishing people? Would he not receive more glory if he saved every single individual? Can he not save everyone? Or we can ask this. Is it because of human free will that not everyone is saved? Is that the reason? If so, does that mean that man is really the final determining factor of his salvation? Can man and his choice really thwart the plan of God? On the other hand, if God has only chosen to save some, how can that be fair? How can humans be responsible for sin if God's plan and actions in salvation and judgment are by his choice? These are huge questions, weighty questions. A lot of difficulties here, and so we're going to turn to the text of Scripture as we see how God's plan in both salvation and judgment serve His glory and the demonstration of His greatness. Okay, these questions are not old. Each and every generation of believers ask these, but it's important for us to wrestle with the Scriptures and answer these questions for ourselves today. Now, before we read again in Romans chapter 9, We've been reminded that not everyone is saved. And so, if not everyone is saved, that is not everyone is forgiven, not everyone is rescued by God such that they will spend eternity with Him, free from sin. If that is the reality, we have to ask what what has happened? Has has God's plan failed? Is, Is His power somehow deficient? Has His word failed? Has His promises failed? Those are the kind of questions in the minds of Paul's readers as he begins here in Romans nine, verse six. So those questions in mind, let's read Romans nine, six to 13, where it says, but it is not as though the word of God has failed for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel and not all. So you see here, the scriptures are seeking to address a question. How can we trust the promises of Romans chapter 8? How can we trust? We talked about last week, Romans 8, 1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No more condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Later on in chapter 8, the Spirit of God has been poured into our heart such that we now cry out, Abba, Father. And we are sealed until the day when Jesus Christ returns. He says those whom God's foreknew, he, he's, he's, he's foreknew them, he's predestined them, he's, he's justified them and he will glorify them. This is an unbroken chain. He's going to do it. His love, we, we cannot be separated from his love. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. And so in light of all of those great promises in Romans chapter 8, the questions fill our mind. Well, what happened to Israel then? Not all of Israel was saved. Didn't they have the promises? Didn't God's word promise them certain blessings? What happened to them? They're not following the Messiah. And so here, Paul has to address the issue of, well, not all of Israel was saved. There was a remnant. Not all of Israel is true Israel. And he begins by saying, it is not as though the word of God has failed. It's not as though the promises have failed, but rather this was part of God's plan. This was part of God's plan. So what I want to show you from these verses here in six to 13 is that salvation, you know, God's plan to rescue sinners is not according to a person's good works. It's not according to their heritage or their blood, who they've been born by, what nationality or class they're part of. It's not according, in fact, to anything in man, but it's by God's choice. So I want to show you from these verses, okay? Now, first, the context of these verses is speaking of individual salvation. I alluded to Romans chapter 8. Look with me, verses 28 to 30 in Romans chapter 8. Chapter 8, verses 28 to 30 says this, And we know that those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he is also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. And the rest of that chapter deals with nothing can separate us from the love of God. He's talking about the salvation of individuals, both Jew and Gentiles, who've been called by God and are being saved. That's the context. Salvation of individuals. Second one. Second thing we need to remember. The example that he gives here, looking back to the Old Testament, that demonstrate that because people are, are not saved, especially talking about the Jews, God's promises haven't failed. Therefore, we can continue to trust his promises. Okay, that's what he wants us to do. That's what God wants us to see from this text. We can trust God. This was his plan. He has not failed. And so he is trustworthy, even if some are not saved. Now, as you look at this text closer, consider how the scriptures illustrate this point, that salvation and judgment is by God's plan. Verse six, it says here, it's not as though the word of God has failed for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. That is not all Israel is true Israel is truly God's people. There has always been a remnant of God's people. And in verse seven, he says this, not all are the children of Abraham because they are his offspring. That is not because you're simply a descendant of Abraham by birth. doesn't mean you're true children of Abraham, but rather it is through the promise given to Abraham that they are true descendants. He explains that in verse eight. This means that it is not the children of the flesh, that is born naturally, who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. And so the true people of God, the true Israel are those who like Abraham believe God and it was counted to him as righteousness. So Paul here would even include Gentiles as children of Abraham. He does that in, in, and later on in this chapter and also in Galatians chapter 3. How as a Gentile, a non-Jewish person, you can be a descendant of Abraham because you're a child of the promise. So it is through the promise given to Abraham that God's true people come. He illustrates this by talking about Abraham and Sarah and how the the promised son was fulfilled through Isaac, not through Ishmael, even though Ishmael was physically born as a son of Abraham. But he was not the, the son of promise, And also he demonstrates through Isaac and Rebekah how it was through Jacob. You know, God calls himself the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, there are other sons in there. But God chose Isaac, not Ishmael. God chose Jacob, not Esau. And so Paul draws on this point to illustrate what he's talking about. That not just by physical birth is one necessarily included in the promises of God. So God chose Abraham and Isaac and Jacob not because of good works, not because they were physical descendants, descendants, not because of what they did. He even says, even before they were born and had done nothing either good or bad in verse 11, but he says it's because of him who calls that God's purpose in election might continue. OK, so the scriptures here are only referring to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, but they are using Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, as an illustration to how God works generally. Okay, He's using this Old Testament story, this history, to demonstrate how God works in salvation. Okay, The point is that it is God's choice that governs redemption. It is God's plan that a remnant of humanity is to be saved through the work of his son, Jesus Christ. Before we continue to the rest of the verses in this chapter, I I thought I should mention something about verse 13, because verse 13 says, As is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What is that talking about? Now, this can be shocking to us, even offensive, to consider how could God tell Esau that he hated him and that he loved Jacob. You know, I thought it was wrong to pick favorites. Now, in this context of this passage, how it's quoted... You know, it seems so stark and shocking to us, but it's really proving the point of what Paul has just talked about. And the fact that God rejected Esau. He says, even though he was the firstborn and was the the rightful heir to the inheritance, God rejected Esau and he chose the younger Jacob. And it wasn't because Jacob was more godly than his older brother Esau, because Jacob was a real weasel. Jacob was a deceiver. He was a rascal. And it wasn't until he got out tricked by Uncle Laban that he started to learn some lessons about being a trickster. Okay, Jacob was just a rotten young person and a rotten older person, but God chose Jacob because this was God's choice, That is His purpose of election. My continue. that's what the verse that's what the verses are saying. And so it is not that God saw Esau and what he had done and so hated him, but rather God had rejected Esau and He had chosen Jacob as the younger, to be the fulfillment of his promises in salvation. And Jacob was later renamed Israel and fathered the twelve tribes of Israel. Okay, so it's clear from these verses that salvation, that is the rescue of sinners, but according to God's plan, is not according to works, not according to heritage or blood, not according to anything in man but God's choice. That's what it's trying to clearly demonstrate to us. And There's no way around that in this text. Now, some object to this and say, well, this passage is really talking about nations. It's not talking about individuals and salvation. It's talking about nations and God's choice of nations. There's a problem with that because the context of Romans 8 and Romans chapter 9 is talking about the salvation of individuals. Okay. And even as we read later on, uh, verse 24, he says, even us whom he called not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. He's talking about both Jew and Gentile who were called by God be objects of mercy, object of his salvation. And he's referring here to Esau and Jacob, not as nations, but as individuals. He's talking about Isaac and Ishmael as individuals. And so the context and what he's talking about here is not talking about nations, but rather the salvation of individuals. Now, as we consider this truth, that salvation is by God's plan, not according to human works, not according to human heritage, not according to anything in man, but according to God's choice, a flood of objections wells up in our minds. How can this be? How can this be fair? God must be unjust. How could he simply choose Jacob and and reject Esau? How is that fair? Especially they've done nothing good or bad. How, How could Esau deserve such a terrible outcome in his life? And so those objections are exactly where the text turns to next. Look at verse 14. Verse 14 says, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? And he says, no, he says, no, emphatically by no means, or may it never be. There's no injustice on God's part, but that's the initial reaction we get when we consider this truth. It doesn't sound fair to us. It doesn't sound right. That's not justice. And so the scriptures here don't say, well, if this is your objection, that you think that God is unfair or there's some kind of injustice going on here, well, that you've completely misunderstood my point and let me correct what I was trying to say. Now, in fact, he restates the point he made in verses 6 to 13. In fact, he states it even more clearly in the verses to come. Look with me at verses 14 to 18. It says, what shall we say then? Considering this truth, is there injustice on God's part by no means for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy for the scripture says to Pharaoh for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then, he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Isn't that just shocking to read that? If this is something you haven't contemplated before, no doubt your, your mind is just reeling on, how can that be? That is completely Shocking. Instead of trying to answer our objections about whether there's injustice on God's part, in fact, it just seems to make our objections even all the more numerous by cementing in the truth even more clearly as if it couldn't be clear enough in verses 6 to 13. He says it's not by human will or exertion. That is, it is not by what is inside us, into our thought, our volition. Neither is it by our actions, that which we might do. He's talking here about the whole totality of man, whether it's from within or from without. It is not that, but it is by God who shows mercy. Shocking what he says here. Now, he quotes back, and as I mentioned before, at Exodus 33, where God has says this to Moses when Moses asked to see God's glory. And so here, when God says, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. God is stating here a principle of his own glory, his freedom, his ability to do what he pleases is part of God's glory, his splendor, his magnificence. We don't have that kind of power. We don't have that kind of glory. Only God possesses that kind of glory. And so that's part of his Magnificence, His splendor as God. <clears throat> verse 16, as we mentioned, it says, So it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who shows or who has mercy. Again, gives us an understanding of that quote from the Old Testament. And then he continues in verse 17. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. We saw that the proclamation of God's name is part of his glory. And so for Pharaoh to be an object of God's judgment is really a demonstration of the glory of God. And so one of the questions we have is how can God receive glory through judgment Well, look no further than the Exodus account. God received glory through Egypt and through Pharaoh. He patiently waited as his people were in bondage for 400 years. And then what does God do? He leads them out in a miraculous display of his power and his glory and a key figure is the relentless obstinacy of Pharaoh who would not let the people go. And we have over and over again in Exodus, beginning all the way in Exodus 4, before Moses even asked Pharaoh, where God said, I'm going to harden his heart so that he will not let my people go. That served the glory of God. That serve the proclamation of God's name such that all the nations around know and such that we know today that God is powerful, that he's a God who saves and he's a God of judgment, that he's a God who is going to demonstrate his power in such a, a great and fantastic way that he's worthy of all worship and praise and fear and reverence. And so he refers here to Pharaoh and to his judgment. Now, what exactly is hardening, as he talks about here in verse number 18? So then he has mercy on whoever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Well, hardening, as you see back in Exodus, as Paul is alluding to it, it's an action that renders someone insensitive to the things of God. It It is not that it creates in them an insensitivity to God but rather confirms them in a state of rebellion and sinfulness that we are all born into. It's confirming someone in their rejection and rebellion to God. And we see that exemplified in Pharaoh. Now, it's important to remember here as it talks about having mercy and hardening whomever he wills. That these are not equivalent acts. It is not as if God does the same thing when he hardens as opposed to when he shows mercy. When God shows mercy. He needs to do a supernatural work. To change someone's heart and mind. Such that they turn and see. The error of their ways. Such that they see the splendid beauty. Of our Lord Jesus Christ. Such that they desire salvation. And that they come to him. In repentance and humility. That requires a supernatural work of God. That requires the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. That requires the work of the Holy Spirit. In this world to convict People of righteousness and of sin and of judgment. God has to go to great lengths to demonstrate his mercy. But in terms of his hardening, God simply has to remove his hand, remove his common grace. And people are confirmed already in their rejection of who he is. But what the scripture is saying so shockingly is that both are based on God's sovereign choice. Now, as I mentioned before, no biblical doctrine stimulates more negative reaction than this one. It flies in the face of what we think is fair, what we think is right, how we think God should be or should act. And also what we think about human responsibility. So Paul turns to these objections in verse number 19. Look at verse 19. He says, in light of this truth, you will say to me then... Why does God still find fault? For who can resist his will? That is, how can anyone be responsible, whether they are saved or condemned? If this is God's choice, how can God find fault? How can this be fair? How can we we be responsible to God? And these are the natural questions that we have. Now, before we look at The script, the answers that scripture gives the overwhelming majority of people today when are confronted with this truth of God's sovereign choice will point to human free will as an explanation of why we have responsibility and why God is fair. That is God has chosen to limit some by his own choice limit some of his own sovereign power and control and to grant humanity a level of autonomy such that we have free will to the extent that salvation ultimately rests in our own hands. God has been gracious to us. He's given us natural revelation. We see it in the mountains. We see it in the stars. We see it in ourselves, in our own conscience. We see in the love and the joy that we can have together. That all testifies to God's presence. And for those people who use their free will to respond towards that, God will be kind to them. To those people who use their free will to respond to the gospel, as it's proclaimed, the good news of Jesus Christ, God will reward that by responding in kind with his mercy and with his salvation. And so human free will is seen as the, the perfect explanation of how God can be just. Because if anyone is rejected, it's because of their own choice. And if anyone is saved, it's because ultimately, it's because of their own choice. So in the end, It ends up being man who determines salvation, not God. God becomes a provider and we become ones who access that provision. You can think of an illustration this way. You know, we're as humanity on an island that is in chaos, anarchy. Things are not well. Things are going down because we're sinful and we're destroying ourselves. And so we're on this small island and we're on this island of destruction. And here comes God in this big, huge cruise ship. And he pulls at, at dock in this island and he sets down his big ramp out there. And he sets up this big banner saying, everyone come this way. Salvation is here. Everyone on that island can choose if they want to get on that ship or they can choose to remain there and to be destroyed. And so in that kind of scenario, we can see, well, if people choose to stay on the island, don't get on the ship, it's really their own fault. There's no injustice on God's part. There's, not, there's nothing wrong with that. They chose, and so they are going to be condemned for their own choice. And so this kind of illustration and free, free will is seen as a perfect explanation of how God can be just and still provide salvation. There's two problems with this common explanation, though. Two problems. First thing is, it's simply nowhere found in this passage. Simply nowhere, nowhere found. Paul doesn't even, even go there at all. And, and it's, it's not found elsewhere in Scripture either. You just don't get an, an appeal to human autonomy to try to take God off the hook, so to speak, so that he's seen as just. Just don't see it in Scripture. Second thing Second problem is, if free will is the answer, if free will is the theology that describes how God can be just in salvation. It fails to bring any of the objections that are mentioned in this chapter. Okay, it fails to bring any of the objections that are mentioned in this chapter. Now, why is this important? Verse number six, raises an objection. It says, but it, is, it as, but it is not as though God, the word of God has failed. Okay, it's not as though the word of God has failed. What's the implied question? Has God's word failed? Does his promises failed? And what grants that, or that that objection comes because not all Israel is saved. Okay, and so Paul could have easily said under the, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, well, it's because of their choice. They, they chose that. And then no other objections would then follow because the blame rests in a person's choice. But he doesn't go there. And then the objection after he states that is according to God's choice in verse 14, he says, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? That objection is because he says it's not according to human will or exertion. And he states it again in verse number number, um, 16. Depends not... On human will or exertion. In fact he says. It's exactly opposite. Of freedom of will. And then in verse 19 he says. You will say to me then. Why does he still find fault? Why does he still find fault? If human autonomy. If human freedom was the answer to this conundrum. None of these objections would have been raised. And so. Paul's theology. Raises these objections. Biblical theology raises these objections. And so if our theology doesn't raise the natural objection of how can that be fair? How can that be just? What about our responsibility? If our theology doesn't raise those objections to the natural mind and the natural man, then it's not a biblical theology. Do you see that here? It's not a biblical theology if our theology doesn't raise these questions that Paul is raising and answering. So, let's continue. He says, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who can resist his will? Now, before we look at the answer, I, thought it, I just want to mention one thing. You know, I don't mean, in what I've just said, that we as human beings don't exercise some level of freedom. But it's a creaturely freedom. We don't have a free will in terms of we are the ones dictating salvation. That is, God has pulled up his cruise ship and we're on the island. And now it's up to us to say yes or no to God. Because if that was the case, if God gave us that kind of freedom, not one single person on this entire planet would be saved. Not a single one. Because look at what we learned last week in Romans chapter 8 the beginning. We're trapped in our sin. We're hopeless. We don't want God We don't want to worship him. We're hostile to him. We cannot please God because we are so full of our sin. And so if he pulled up his ship and put up his banners, not one person would walk on that ship if it was up to us. More realistically, God pulls up that ship on that island and he sends his Holy Spirit into this world. To grab people and and to put within them a new heart. A new heart to see the great glory of God, to see their own sinfulness, to see the beauty of that salvation such that they get on that ship of their own free will because of the miraculous work of the new birth that God has done in them. So we do have a will. We do have volition. We do make choices. But in our sinfulness, we're in bondage and we need God's power to set us free. Now, let's look at this text again. Let's read Romans 19 to 24 as we handle this objection of God's fairness and our responsibility. He says in verse 19, you will say to me, then, why does he still find fault for who can resist his will? And then verse 20. But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Well, what is molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? Even us, whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. So we see here, as Paul responds to this objection of God's justice and human responsibility, he does not point to human autonomy. He does not point to human freedom, but rather he points to God's freedom, God's autonomy. Who are you to answer back to God? That is, who are we to come with this haughty, rebellious attitude and accuse God of injustice? This is the creator of the universe. This is the potter. Where did your sense of justice come from? You ever thought of that? How do we know what's right and what's wrong? How do you know what's, what's fair? How do you know what's, what's just? It comes from God. God is the standard of what is right and wrong. God is the standard of justice. How do you know what love is? Because God is love. How do you know what truth is? Because God is truth. All of these virtues, we know them. Because God is them. And so when we come to text like this. And he says how can you accuse God of injustice? God is the very definition of justice that you're using. You receive from God himself. And so there's no way we can come to God with accusations. As his creature. And then he points to God's freedom. By saying that God is the potter. And we are the clay. And as the potter he has the right over the clay to make out of the same lump of all of humanity one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use. Then he continues in verse 22. He says, What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. That is, who are we to question God, to sit in judgment over God? We can't. God is the potter and we are the clay. He has the right over the clay. And then he says, what if God has done it this way? that he's taken that big lump of clay and he's made some vessels for dishonorable use and some for honorable use. Some vessels he has endured with much patience, those who have been prepared for destruction, in order that he may show his mercy and the riches of his glory on those whom he's prepared beforehand for glory, for mercy. Now his what if there is not an what if like well, this might be an explanation. Maybe God chose to do it this way. We don't know. What if? It sounds like pretty good to me. Paul is not throwing it out there as if, uh, what if, take it or leave it. But he's rather saying, if God, as the potter, has chosen to do it this way, what right do we have to accuse him of injustice? That's what he's saying. He's saying, if God has done this, and he has, Then can we come to him and say you're unjust? Can you go to a potter and say, Potter, you shouldn't do that with that clay that you're molding and shaping. You have no right over that clay. That'd be foolish. We couldn't say that to a potter. And the same thing, coming to the sovereign creator and saying, you have no right to do that. God has every right to do that because he is the creator. He is the potter. So what does this text say here about God's purposes? God's purposes. And this is really what we sought to answer as we began. God desires, it says, to show his wrath and power on vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. Of those, both Jews and Gentiles, okay? He's not speaking about nations. He's speaking about individuals, okay? So these here are the verses that concern our subject matter as we reflect on the glory of God in the salvation of sinners. It is, it was, it is God's plan to glorify himself both through judgment and through salvation, through mercy. Why has God chosen to do it this way? He is the potter. We are the clay. His glory is demonstrated in his power, in his wrath, in his judgment, in his holiness, in his justice, in his fear when he judges. And the backdrop of that judgment shines as bright stars, brighter than the sun, the glory of his mercy, that he would stoop down, through his son who died on the cross to rescue and redeem these vessels that he has chosen to redeem, to show his mercy, to show his grace, to snatch them from the fate that, and the direction that they were already running, to turn them around and to work in them in such a way that they would be redeemed, that they would be saved. God has chosen to do this for his own glory, to display the riches of his glory. So often we consider this text, we can't even see the glory of God because we're so full of objections, because our view of mankind is this big and our view of God is this big. And so we can't, because our heads are so big, we can't even see the glory of God because we're too worried about ourselves. But this text is meant to show us God's glory in salvation, his glory power, his autonomy, his right over all that is his to demonstrate his name and his worth and his glory and his riches. Now, it says here when he talks about those vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, he says that he endured with much patience in verse 22. He patiently endured evil and wickedness delaying his judgment you can think of like the garden of eden god could have wiped out adam and eve right there that's it i'm gonna start over again but he patiently endured the entrance of evil into this world he could have wiped out the earth in the days of noah but he patiently endured evil he could have wiped out the earth a million times over all throughout history but god is patiently enduring Evil. And why does God allow evil to continue? Why does God patiently endure evil and injustice in this world? Because in order that he might show the immeasurable greatness of his mercy, he allowed sin in the garden to demonstrate his mercy and salvation. He allowed the wickedness of the earth in the days of Noah so he could show his mercy on Noah and his family. He allows wickedness in the earth such that we can see the mercy and the grace offered through the Lord Jesus Christ. And so it's through great darkness that God patiently endures in order that he may show his mercy and love. Now, as we've gone through this text... We have answered all the questions that I raised at the beginning. Maybe not to your satisfaction, but we have touched on all those questions that I raised at the beginning. But the problem is we now likely have many more questions that we didn't have before. Perhaps you're still stuck on seeing the glory of God. And perhaps in fact, rather than seeing God high and exalted and glorified, perhaps you actually think less of him after going through this text. Perhaps your objection is, I just don't like it. You know, we can read this text. It is so clear. He says it over and over and over again. and he, he makes it clear and clear and clear. there's no way around what this text is saying. But perhaps our objection is is this, I, I just don't like it. I can read it, I can understand it, but I don't like it. It just It just can't be Then I think you need to consider. And ask. And ponder. And wrestle with yourself. Is your view of God big enough. To encapsulate what these verses are saying. Or is your view of God too small. Is your view of yourself too big. Such that you cannot see the glory of God in this text. Now we can't just turn on these things. Or turn off these things in terms of our, our views. And our reactions to texts text like this. But I would Implore you, if you're having difficulty with a text like this, wrestle with it, pour your heart into the meditation and study of texts like this and the many other that say the very same things. Wrestle with God. Ask him to give you an understanding of whether these things are true. Ask him to open your eyes to see his sovereign control and power such that you would not object to it and cringe at it and say, I can't believe my God is like that, but such that you would glory in it and say, I thank you that my God is that big and that powerful because what a comfort that is and what a joy that is and what worship wells up in my heart when I consider a God who is that big. And that powerful so don't give up wrestle with the text and our goal the result of grappling with and seeing god as he's presented in these chapters in the book of romans is to have that same response that paul had in romans chapter 11 when he said this oh the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of god how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid for from him and through him and to him are all things to him be glory forever. Amen. Paul spoke those words, probably sang those words after contemplating for three chapters, God's sovereignty and his right over his creation. That's where we want to be. That's where we want to go. So wrestle with this text. Now, perhaps after getting over that initial feeling of disgust, there's other legitimate questions that you have. Not rebellious, but inquisitive. Maybe you're asking this. Why doesn't he save everyone though? Why doesn't he save everyone? Would not he receive more glory from saving everyone? Why does he have to endure patiently with these vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? Now, typically, we ask this question, why doesn't he save everyone? There's another question that we could ask that we rarely ask, which is this. Why does he save anyone? See the difference? We ask, why doesn't God save everyone? Or we could just easily have asked, why does God save anyone? Both are legitimate questions. But those questions stem from two different views of who we are before God. When we ask, why doesn't God save everyone deep down? whether well, we admit it or not. We're thinking God really should. He really should do that. Because there is something about humanity that God really should redeem. He really should save everyone. Because, hey, we're a good group of people. We're, yeah, we're rough around the edges. Yeah, we're sinners. But really, God should save everyone if he's a good God. Because we're good. And it would be a good thing to save everyone. Where if you had the question, why doesn't God, or why does God save anyone, you probably have a more biblical way of understanding and looking at mankind. Because rather than seeing men like we can see in the flesh, we see mankind like we see in Scripture. And we realize that we're sinful, we're depraved. We're adulterers and idolaters. We're lust-filled. We're sexually immoral. We're haters. We're greedy. We commit wars and hatred and murder. We, we have in our heart a disgust for God. We don't want to worship Him in our natural state. We don't want Him. We want to do our own things. We want to worship ourselves. We're covenant breakers. We're unfaithful. We live for our own selfish pleasures. So much of our lives We don't even think or consider the very God who has made us. Evil flows from our hearts, as Jesus himself says. And if we really understood the plight of man and the plight of ourselves, we would cry, oh God, why would you save even one of us? You would be more justified and more just if you just destroyed everything. That's what we would think if we truly knew our state and condition before God. One of the great obstacles we have to the doctrines presented in Romans nine is because our view of man is too high. It's not biblical. We would ask, "Why would God save anyone if we truly knew what we were?" Our view of God and our view of man has profound effect on the questions and objections that we have when we come to this text. Okay. Now, if we were to ask that question, you know, maybe solve that question: Why? Why doesn't God save everyone? I'm not trying to be rebellious, but why doesn't he save everyone? Well, the scriptures tell us here. It was God's plan to demonstrate both his power and wrath and judgment in order to demonstrate his mercy and salvation. God has chosen to glorify himself by displaying all of his attributes. We see his wrath. We see his holiness. We see his power and judgment. We see him as a God to be feared. And we also see him as a God who's merciful and gracious and loving. And so we see all of his attributes on display, both in judgment and in salvation. And God has planned to glorify himself in this way. And this is the answer that he gives to us of why not everyone is saved. I want to remind you again that this act of judgment And this act of mercy are not equivalent. It says here that God has endured with much patience vessels of wrath. Prepared for destruction. In order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy. So God had to endure patiently those vessels of wrath. Enduring patiently. Whereas on those vessels of mercy. God had to demonstrate the riches, the magnitude, the treasures of his glory and his greatness. If you think about about that that ship that's pulled along port on that island. In order for God to demonstrate his judgment. All he has to say to that island of people who are perishing in their own sin is to say your will be done. You have your way. Pull up the ship and pull away. That's all God has to do. To patiently endure evil on these vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. But for those vessels of mercy, God has to go and to ransom and to redeem. God had to send his own son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross. And that wasn't a walk in the park. Jesus really died. He really suffered the wrath of almighty God, of which we have no comprehension of what that would be like. And he did that to rescue people, to demonstrate His mercy. And now He sends His Spirit into this world to do a miracle in each and every one of a, each and every believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't come to God according to our free will or our autonomy. We will stay in our sins perpetually, forever. It requires the work of God, and He does that through His Holy Spirit, through the process of the new birth, by ripping out that heart of stone and giving us a heart of flesh. That is a miracle, a new creation, the scripture says, the new birth born from above. And it's a work of God that he must do in every single believer. God must do a miracle for every single person who is saved. And so it's not that his acts of judgment and his acts of mercy and salvation are just equal. As if his choice in either case uh, was the same cost to him. For God to save, it is very costly and it demonstrates the treasures, the riches of His mercy, of His glory. And I know there's still some big questions looming. I just want to address a couple others. What about responsibility for sin? Responsibility for sin. How can people be truly responsible for their sin and thus God's judgment? How can we truly be responsible? Only if people are responsible for their actions can God's judgment truly be just. And I would agree. Only if people were responsible for their actions can God's judgment truly be just. And we can agree to that. Let me give you two things that have helped me as I have wrestled through this idea. The first thing is this. Our responsibility is not lessened or removed because God has created us a certain way. Rather, our responsibility is founded on the fact that God has created us a certain way. Okay, what I mean by that. God is the creator, he's the potter, we are the creation. Therefore, we are responsible and accountable to him, period. No ifs, ands, or buts. If God is the creator, and we are the creature, automatically we are responsible to Him. Automatically we are accountable to Him. And our world knows that. That's why we have so many agnostic and atheists who deny the existence of God because they know if God exists, then we're responsible. Then we're accountable. On that basis alone, they know it. And so, we are responsible for God because He is our Creator no matter what. That's the first thing we need to believe. The second thing, we also see that we are responsible for our sin because we're not coerced. It is our desire to sin. Okay? It's our desire to sin. If someone threatens you with death, you know, held a gun to your head and said, I need you to go into your workplace and steal this stuff and come out and give it to me. And if you don't, you're a goner and so is your family. All right? If you went into work and you stole something, you know, and you talked to the police afterwards, your responsibility in that case would be severely lessened or maybe even uh, gone because you're under coercion, the threat of death. And so you wouldn't be held responsible for that crime. But our sin is not like that way. God is, does not have a gun to our head telling us that we need to sin, or else we sin of our own volition. Not this human autonomy that goes beyond God's autonomy that we now call the shots in this universe. But we do have creaturely freedom, a creaturely will. And how do we use this will? To sin. What do we do when we have room and freedom in our lives? We sin. And we do it out of volition, out of choice, out of desire. It's from the heart. All manner of unrighteousness and wickedness come. And so we see that we are responsible for our sin because we are not forced to sin. We lust, we covet, we lie in our pride. All of these flow from our heart and so we are judged rightly because we are not forced by God to sin. Someone could argue, well, is not our desires ultimately come from God? Well, God does give us a desire to eat, but if we are gluttons, we can't blame God for that. God gives us a desire for sex, but that's within the bounds of marriage. And so if we're fornicators, and if we fill our eyes with all kinds of sensual or read things, again, we are breaking God's law. We're taking those good desires God given, given to us and we perverted them. And so we stand responsible and condemned. So, because God has created us and because we act according to our own desires, there's no way we can slip out and say that we are not responsible before God. Last question I want to address before we close. This one's probably the most personal. Okay? A lot of Heady stuff here this morning, but this one's the most personal as we consider objects of wrath and objects of mercy. Maybe your question is, what if I'm not a vessel of mercy, but what if I'm a vessel of wrath? What if I've been prepared for destruction and not prepared beforehand for mercy? Very personal. And how we answer that question is so very important. We cannot take the truths of this chapter and say, Hmm, whatever will be, will be. If you're chosen, you're chosen. If you're not, you're not. Hmm. That is unbiblical. That is wrong. That is against the scriptures, because here we have these truths presented in Romans chapter nine. And then what does it say in Romans chapter 10? Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. We have the promise of Jesus, come to me, all oh, you are thirsty, and I'll give you rest. So if you ask this question, how do I know if I'm, I'm chosen? How do I know if I'm not this vessel of wrath? So often we ask those questions because we want to stay in our rebellion. We want to stay in our pride. And we don't want to come to God, and we're going to blame him because we're not coming to him. And we're going to say, God, it's your fault. You didn't choose me. You didn't, you didn't demonstrate to me your mercy and your grace. And so it's really your fault that I'm here. It's your fault that I'm a sinner. And we place the blame all on God. Nobody knows whose God's um, are his vessels of mercy and his vessels of wrath. Nobody knows that. We know there are some. We know when everyone's going to be saved. But we have so often the scriptures, the call, the plea to everyone. In fact, it's a command for all people everywhere to repent and to believe the gospel. We are promised that those who come to the Lord Jesus Christ who bow their knee in humility and embrace him with reliance and trust and say, I believe that you came and that you died on the cross and that is necessary for me. There's nothing I can do. There's there's no place I can go. There's no organization that I need to be a part of. It doesn't matter if I've been wet in the baptistry. I need your salvation. I need your forgiveness. And I cling to you and to you alone. I'm not trusting in anything else. If you do that, you'll be saved. That's the promise of scripture. And so how do we reconcile this truth in Romans chapter nine with that? For all those who have done that, for all those who desire salvation, all those who see the necessary beauty of the Lord Jesus Christ and come to him in repentance and faith, it is because God has been working in you because God has been gracious to you because God has shown his mercy to you. And so thank God for his mercy and continue to pursue him, continue to seek him. There is no one who has sought the Lord genuinely and never found him. Jesus says, seek and you'll find. Knock and they'll be open to you. There is no one who has come to the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation. And Jesus says, nope, you're not chosen. Sorry. No one, and no one ever will. Jesus says, all who come to me, all who desire to drink from the water of life, come and come freely. And as we come, we know that it's because the work of God in our life. We know it's because we were a wretched sinner unable. We know it was the work of the Holy Spirit to, to take us and to rip out our heart of stone that hated and rejected God and to put in us a heart of flesh that desired God. And so don't ask that question. How do I know if I'm chosen or not? How do you know? Pursue God with all of your might. Pursue Him with all of your strength. Cry out to Him for salvation. Wrestle with the Word of God. Plead with Him to give you a bigger picture of His glory and His grace. And never, never stop. Don't let these questions excuse your own sin. Don't let these questions fester in you such that you blame God for your own rebellion. Charles Spurgeon said it famously. This way. He said the same sun that hardens clay melts wax. And I pray that the glory of God here would not harden your heart, but would melt it. Let's pray. Oh God, we covered some truths today that were lofty, shocking. And God, if we don't take the time to digest these truths, to meditate over them, to mull over them, to wrestle with them, then we will never apprehend them. We will never come to this place where we can glorify you for who you are, that we can see your grandeur, just how big you are and how how mighty you are and that your freedom is all encompassing and we are but dust we are not worthy of your mercy we are not worthy of your grace and when we come to the point we recognize that we are unworthy we come to the point when we recognize how sinful we are it is then when we are Broken and see the greatness of our Lord Jesus Christ. We see the greatness of your plan to glorify yourself. in the judgment and the salvation of sinners. Oh God bring us to that point where we can worship you with our whole heart. May these doctrines not push us away but may they draw us close to you. To give us a right view of you. Oh God we want to know you. Not some abstract view of you, not some man-made view of you. God, we want to know who you are truly, so give us a heart to understand. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.